You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we're getting to the end of this study uh, of Ecclesiastes 10, and today I want to talk about, uh, the sermon title is, Like Ketchup on a White Shirt, Like Ketchup on a White Shirt, Ecclesiastes 10. Since the beginning of the book, we have seen the author, he calls himself the preacher, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, he is likely uh, Solomon, King Solomon. He has, from the very beginning, been giving us warnings. Uh, it is, in many ways, a book of warnings, I think you could say. Uh, and he begins by just describing his extensive search for meaning in life. And he basically concludes from the very beginning that life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. It's, it's a word that, uh, that it means that it is, futile. it is futile. Life is elusive. It's impossible to grasp and grip a hold of. He, he says, this, try however much I try, I cannot wrestle down life. And throughout the book, he describes his own search to really find life. Early on, he uh, has an autobiographical sort of sketch of his pursuit of life. He was the king. He had power. He had uh, homes. He had uh, expansive gardens. Uh, He had entertainment. He had actually, he says literally, wine, women, and song. Uh, more, than, uh, more than he could handle of all the above. He had everything, and yet, he says, at the end of it all, my conclusion is it's, it's empty. It's empty, is what he said. Uh, he says that joy is elusive, and the reason is because joy is a gift from God. You cannot enjoy your life, ultimately, uh, without knowing God. We try to chase all the things that he chased and try to find gain through them. But the point of the book is that life is gift, not gain. You cannot grasp the things of life and make a meaningful life. You only have a meaningful life by receiving life as a gift from God. And so he makes the point over and over that when you receive life as a gift from God, even the smallest things, he says, like eating, like wine, Uh, like marriage, like your job, even the most mundane things can fill us with joy. And so he's giving us warnings about where to find life throughout the book. This chapter, chapter 10, uh, here he's going to give us another warning. And this is a warning, I, I believe, ultimately geared towards wise people. Wisdom is good, But the point in this chapter that he's going to make is that wisdom is vulnerable because wisdom has an enemy, and that enemy is foolishness or folly. And he says in this chapter that a little bit of folly can overturn or outweigh a lot of wisdom. Just a little bit of folly can outweigh a lot of wisdom. Even the wise let their guards down And a little folly damages a lot of wisdom. Now, 
just like uh, the last two, two, two chapters ago, chapter 8, this chapter is written similarly. At first reading, uh, it makes no sense of w- what a cohesive theme uh, through the chapter is because it reads a lot like one proverb after another stacked on one another. So what I'm going to do is rather than typically I read through the whole chapter or the whole section, I'm going to read sections and teach on it as we go through, seeking to understand uh, what he is talking about. And we're going to start with just the first section, one through three. This section is wisdom versus folly. Wisdom versus folly, verses one through three. Listen to God's holy word. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, as as I said before, there are there are verses that uh, sections that don't apparently connect one with the other, but several verses at a time do. And this is clearly about wisdom and folly. And everything in the in the chapter revolves around this idea of comparing wisdom and folly, but specifically the first verse. I think the first verse drives. Uh, everything he talks about in the rest of the chapter, and that is that a little bit of folly can overturn a whole lot of wisdom. So to do this, he gives us a picture at the beginning. He says that, uh, imagine you have, you know, uh, an ointment, a, a perfumed ointment, maybe a jar of uh, of a perfumed ointment, and he says that evidently some flies are drawn to the ointment. They get in the ointment, they get stuck, and they die. And what happens, he says in verse 1, is that dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So they're very small little flies, but as their corpses decay, there's a stench that overtakes the beauty, the, 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 the wonderful scent of the perfume. And so he makes the point that that is how folly works. A little bit of folly can ruin or overturn a great deal of wisdom. A little bit of folly shows up in a generally wise person, and it, it stands out, he says, just as dead flies can ruin a sweet-smelling perfume. One author said, a little folly in a wise man is far more visible than a little wisdom in a fool. Ketchup on a white shirt is highly visible. It's this idea, it's, it's perhaps a more a stark um, picture of just a little bit of something can stand out and can have a negative effect like ketchup on a white shirt. In verse 2, he goes on to compare the wise person and the fool. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Uh, that is not a political statement by any means. Not a political statement at all, but what he's, he's comparing right and left. In the Bible, generally speaking, the right is good and the left is bad. Apologies if you're left-handed, but that's generally how the Scripture uses it. So Jesus separates and he puts, what, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, for instance. And uh, he says, the, the fool's head to the left. Now, in the Bible, especially in wisdom literature, there's a lot of discussion about fools and wise people. 
And the fool is not the person that lacks intelligence. So the fool is not a stupid person, but the fool is defined really in Psalm 14, 1, where it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So whenever we read in wisdom literature, uh, uh, which is Job and and Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and when we read about the fool who shows up frequently in these books, we're talking about someone who says in his heart, there is no God. It's the person who lives as if God doesn't exist. It's the person who ignores God, lives their entire life without reference to God, without reference to his commands, without uh, living aware that we're all accountable to God. And, and he's saying that, that that is, the Bible says that's what the fool is like. And so early on, when we take that definition, early on we can realize we are all, we are all vulnerable to foolishness, to folly. Because it means to live life ignoring God. How often do we make decisions and do we live our lives uh, ignoring who He is and what He commands? Living almost as if He doesn't exist. Aware very much of His existence in the moment of a worship service on Sunday morning. But on Wednesday afternoon, when the heat is on, making decisions and acting as if God doesn't exist. That's, that's how a fool lives. And so we're all vulnerable to acting foolishly, to giving in to folly. Uh, and the Bible makes it clear that when we do a very small thing, like a few flies can stink up a good-smelling perfume. So it's a warning to us. Well, the, the wise person moves to the right. The fool moves to the left. And they're driven by their hearts. So our behavior is driven from our heart. It says, number, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. Uh, these two people, the fool and the wise person, are moving in different directions. And what separates them or what drives their direction is their hearts, it says. So the heart that fears the Lord is the wise person. This is the person who moves along the pathway of trust love for God and others, devotion to Christ, obedience to His Word. The fool is moving down a different pathway, the pathway of self, the pathway of pride, the pathway of independence. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the path of the person who's looking for real true meaning in life apart from God. That is the fool. And as the fool heads to the left, verse 3 says, even the fool who walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone, he's a fool. The person's so foolish that he's going around announcing, I'm a fool. Now, he's not actually saying that, but, but he's, he's, his, his, what, what, what the verse means is that his actions uh, advertise the nature of his heart. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon tells us about the fool, that the fool is an angry person. Chapter 7, verse 9. And that shows up just when you encounter him. The fool talks too much. Chapter 5, verse 3. The fool doesn't do what he says he will do. Chapter 5, verse 4. The fool is lazy. Chapter 4, verse 5. The fool doesn't take advice. Chapter 4, verse 13. He's arrogant. And the fool walks in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 14. So these are things that are very obvious once encountering the fool. He goes on to say that sometimes our leaders are fools as well, and, and that affects everybody. 
in verses 4 through 7. This is folly and leaders. So he starts wisdom and folly, verses 1 to 3. Folly and leaders, verses 4 through 7. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So he starts by saying, okay, look, if you get chewed out by someone in authority, don't stomp off. That's foolish. Don't, don't act in kind. Don't respond in kind to someone. In this case, he says it's a ruler uh, uh, rises against you in anger. So if someone is angry with you and expe- expressing anger to you, uh, don't respond in kind. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. So you can see how this works here. A little bit of folly in that moment, venting anger in the moment when you are corrected by an authority can have devastating effects in your life. Maybe you're generally not an angry person, but you respond in anger to your boss when they're angry with you. You say something you shouldn't say, and it's like a dead fly in a jar of perfume. It's like this could ruin, I could lose my job over something like this. An angry response says a calming response is good. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. An angry response in kind can crush a relationship in our lives. It can harm someone you love. It it can tarnish your reputation. Uh, In the area I grew up in, there was a church in our area that had a, a gym and uh, ran a basketball league, like a church basketball league. And the pastor of that church played in the league. I wasn't present for this, but it was well known in the area. He played in that league. Got, someone got into it with somebody in a game, the pastor in the church league at the gym of the church he pastored, uh, and he punched a guy. So you can have right doctrine and right leadership, and right sermons, and it can, poof, be gone with a right hook, just like that. (laughs) Because once that happens, this guy, I mean, it's hard not to see the ketchup on the white shirt the next Sunday when he's preaching. So you don't respond in anger to someone because a little bit of action can have devastating effects. Now, obviously, there's forgiveness Um, in the Lord, and I'm not minimizing that reality. But the the warning of the text is, look what can happen. Look what a small thing can do. Verses 5 to 7, he talks about uh, uh, how a leader's folly can uh, maybe not only show up in his anger, verse 4, but can affect an entire culture. He says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Now, what he describes here on the surface sounds like actually something good. He says, you know, look, uh, I've, I've, uh, uh, I've seen the rich in a low place. That actually can be a good thing in Scripture where the powerful are humbled. And he says, I've seen slaves on horses. That's a picture of power. People who rode on horses, they were not common then. Uh, that was a picture of power. So this sounds good. It sounds redemptive, right? A slave is taken from a place 
uh, where they are uh, marginalized, uh, despised, and they are transferred to a position of power. That sounds like redemption. But he's talking about something bad here. And the reason we know this is because verse 5, there, there was an error proceeding from the ruler, and this is what happened. Folly was in high places and the rich in a low place. So he's contrasting the rich and, and folly takes over where they would normally be. And then there's slaves on horses and princes on the ground. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, it helps to understand uh, we see slavery through uh, our history and the grievous experience in our own country, but slavery functioned differently there. And Sean O'Donnell, in his commentary uh, on Ecclesiastes, helped explain this well. This is what O'Donnell says. The preacher doesn't refer here to black slaves and their horrendous mistreatment within the American historical narrative. In contrast, slaves, as used by the preacher, would refer to criminals or debtors or prisoners of war. His poetry and his proverbs state the general truth that it is normatively unwise to put criminals serving their sentence or debtors who cannot manage themselves or prisoners of war from a foreign land into positions of authority and care over people. That, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, a leader can do, an error can proceed from a leader and it can turn the entire culture upside down where everybody is affected. And those who have no business in leadership, the debtor, uh, the prisoner of war, are now leading. That's a bad thing, he's saying. He, he goes on later in the chapter to give us another example of folly, foolishness, in government. Verse 16, we're out of order here a little bit, I get it, but he's, this is the same theme, so I'm going to jump there. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house sinks. So, uh, uh, the house leaks. I'm sorry, the house leaks. So, he's saying when there's immature people leading, there is trouble. He speaks of princes that are partying in the morning. They're doing so to get drunk, he says. The princes uh, don't feast at the proper time. They're, they're uh, for drunkenness, it says in verse 17. So the leaders are, don't know when they should be working and when they should be partying, and it affects so many people. Knowing when to feast, knowing when to work is a mark of wisdom. And so the roof doesn't cave in when those who are in charge are paying attention to when the roof starts leaking to repair the roof. But when you have leaders who are not paying attention to what they should be paying attention to and are out for their own selfishness, partying as these princes do, then you have trouble because they're not taking care of business. They refuse to fix the leaky roof. Those who rule with wisdom make it better for everyone. And those who rule in foolishness harm everyone. And this is why the Bible tells us uh, that the posture of the Christian is not to be primarily the critic of leadership, political leadership or of any other, but the one who is interceding in prayer for those who lead. We must be crying out to God for those who lead because a little bit of foolishness among those who have authority has devastating effects on all the people under their lead. Many of us lead in various roles, and this is sobering. It's meant to be sobering. 
that if you lead, lead in your family or lead in the marketplace, you know, lead as a volunteer coach of your kid's team, whatever it is, that, that foolishness can affect everyone else. When we live and act and make decisions as if there is no God, decisions for our own self-interest and what benefits us, then people are seriously hurt. So this is what the warning is given. Now, this is what I've seen in evil when there's foolishness among leaders. Verses 8 through 11, so let's go back to where we were. Here he's going to talk about foolishness in daily life. So folly among political leaders or leaders, now folly in daily life. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So he's talking about daily life here. And the whole chapter started, and again, remember those few flies that stink up the ointment. And here he's saying that, uh, that, again, folly can damage a whole lot of wisdom. And if we look at verses 8 and 9, it seems at first like he's talking about workplace safety, doesn't it? Somebody who builds a pit and falls into it. Someone quarries stones and is hurt. Someone splits logs and is endangered by them. This is not the biblical foundations for OSHA or something like that. We're, we're concerned about worker safety. That's not what he's talking about. But rather, the person who gives into folly, that person is harmed by the most basic functions. The, the fool builds a trap. So digs a hole, puts something, camouflage over it, leaves, straw, whatever, to catch an animal, turns around, and then steps into it himself. That's what happens. A person is quarrying stones, and one falls down on them. Someone's, the, the fool's breaking through a wall, and he's not paying attention, and he, a snake right there bites him. And so uh, what he's saying is don't give in to folly or foolishness. Be alert, because the smallest things ultimately can do damage. You can hurt yourself and others. In, chap- in, in verses 10 and 11, he does something different. In verses 10 or 11, he's uh, contrasting two, two ways of working. He says, first of all, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, so he's just talked about splitting logs in the verse before. If the iron, verse 10, is blunt and does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. So if you're chopping wood with a dull axe, it's going to take a lot of work. So what's the point? Take your time, prepare, sharpen the axe, and then you'll succeed. He uses the word succeed there. You'll succeed much better. So take your time and prepare. Don't just launch into it. Verse 11, he says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So you know how someone charms a snake and they, they hypnotize them and they sort of freeze. So he's saying here, you better charm the snake. Hurry up and get on with it. Don't take your time. If you're just sort of taking your time with the snake and doing whatever and preparing uh, for your presentation as a snake charmer, you're going to get bit. So start off by getting right to it and charming the snake. He says the exact opposite. So he says the first one is, take all your time and sharpen your blade, then you'll be successful. The second time he says, what are you waiting on? Charm the snake or you're gonna get bit. So which is it? Is it get to it or is it take your time to prepare? Well, it can be either and wisdom is knowing which it is. The wise person is the one who makes wise decisions, knowing 
when to take your time and knowing when to act. Fools don't know that. And so fools swing the axe and do way more work than is necessary because the blade is dull. And fools are out talking too much and doing whatever instead of charming the snake, and they're getting bitten. So the wise know when to act in which situation, Solomon says. Last section we'll talk about is folly in speech. Folly in speech. When you think about a little fly or a little blob of ketchup, our speech trips us up perhaps more than anything else. Verses 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. And then we're going to read the last verse of the entire chapter as well, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is all about speech. Wisdom is known by its speech, and so is folly, known by its speech. A wise person can undo much wisdom with a rash, unkind, angry, or critical word, or tweet, uh, or post, Instagram post, whatever it is. Verse 12 says, the speech of a wise person wins favor, whereas the fools, listen to this, the, the lips of a fool consume him. While the fool is blabbing on and on, it's self-destructive. He's actually consuming himself. Uh, he's doing damage to himself by his social media post, by he, what he texts other people in the, in the group chat or whatever it is, why, what he says to other people. He's consuming himself. And while he's consuming himself, he just or she just keeps on going and going. Verse 14, a fool multiplies words. Rather than knowing when to be quiet, she goes on and on and on and on. Though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Nobody knows what's coming, but the fool is going to tell you. This is what's going to happen. And they're going to prognosticate and, and, and speak about this is what's going to happen this season. I know it for a fact. It's the Cowboys fans every September, and I'm one of them. Gonna, this is the year. Fool. Multiplying words. How many years are we going to multiply those words? We don't know the future. Well, actually, there's quite a track record. We could tell what's going to happen in January. The fool, verse 15, says, uh, the, the, the toil of a fool wears him. He doesn't even know the way to the city. So the fool is talking on and on about what he or she knows. The fool doesn't even know how to get back to the city. It's, 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 uh, we gotta, he's saying, watch your words. Watch your words. You can undo so much uh, wisdom with just a word. Lastly, the fool criticizes those in authority. And, and I feel that temptation uh, to, I know you do too, in this culture. I've, I've referenced politics already, but there's the temptation. And it seems like it's only uh, heightened in the last number of years. Whether you're on the right or the left, it does not matter. 
there, there, if foolishness is an equal opportunity political uh, employer, is it not? On both sides uh, and in the middle, the centrist as well, no matter who you are. But there is this, there is this criticism, especially where we just feel so free. If every word we spoke out against a leader had been a word of intercessory prayer instead, where would we be, I wonder? It's so easy to criticize, but it takes so much effort to love your enemies and pray for those in authority over you. That's a different thing altogether. Well, he's warning against that kind of thing. Hey, don't even in your thoughts curse the king, verse 20, nor in your bedroom. If you say something in your bedroom in private, there's a little bird that's going to fly off and tell them, I don't know if this is where the saying comes, a little bird told me. I don't know if it originates from Ecclesiastes, but that's it. The king calls you, and how do you know? A little bird told me. He's saying that even when you think you are in private, even when you think you're in private, hey, I don't mean to gossip or anything, but I'm just, this is just a prayer request, okay? And you did that, so-and-so really needs our prayer. And you're just sharing that little thing in private. It's, be careful. What you say in private it should be what you're prepared to say if the person is standing there face to face, especially with someone in authority, the king who could do, do you in in this situation. Just a few foolish words can ruin a lot of wisdom. This chapter puts the fear of the Lord in me because when you finish this chapter and all the things we looked at, I think we feel so vulnerable that I could say or do something, or fail to do something at any time that could blow up. That my heart could go to a foolish place very quickly. I could spout off, I could do something, and act as if I have no accountability before God, and that I'm not under the authority of the Scripture, that I could just do whatever. That moment of foolishness I, I'm vulnerable. It could blow up on me because my heart does go foolish places. I read this chapter and all the different ways, anger, flippant speech, gossip, um, you know, hurrying up when I'm supposed to be waiting and waiting when I'm supposed to be hurrying up. I, I read all of this and, and see that I am vulnerable, that at times I've got my white shirt on, I'm holding the ketchup bottle just like this over my shirt, and I've got it squeezed and a dollop's hanging out, and as soon as I let go, it's on my shirt. That's how I feel when I read this chapter. And if that's how you feel, that's good, because that represents wisdom. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. The wise person knows they're vulnerable. The wise person knows what can arise up in their heart in any moment. The wise person is not pointing the finger at all the fools. The wise person is saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. The wise person is the one who realizes that my heart can go at any moment to a place of folly. And when we take just this chapter and look at what a fool is, we would all, if we're honest before the holy God of the universe, have to say, we're all fools by nature. We should not walk away from here going, oh, all those fools don't even know their way back to the city. Well, I sure do. We've missed the chapter. This is the Word of God 
opening our hearts and exposing what is in us all, knowing that we are not ultimately wise, that we all move to folly at times, that we are all fools at times. And the good news is that Jesus did not come to rescue wise people, but fools. The good news is that we can see ourselves in this chapter and yet know that it is for us that Christ came. It is not the wise person that needs to be rescued out of danger or out of sin. It is not the alert, aware, spiritually alive person that needs to be pulled up out of the pit that they dug to catch an animal and fell into their own pit. It is the sinner. It is the fool that needs the rescuing power of Jesus Christ. And you know, this is what the New Testament tells us is that the New Testament says something about fools as well. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus gave his life for fools. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, if you read a section of scripture like this and you self-identify as the wise person who has it all together, then you will not boast in the Lord. You will boast in yourself. But when I see the propensity towards folly, the luring, the temptations of folly, and I'm alert to that, then I boast in Jesus who saves me from my sin and folly and who protects me and guards me and holds me to the very end. And I boast in Jesus, my Savior. The good news is that he has chosen the foolish, that he has become our wisdom. My wisdom is not in me. Jesus is my wisdom, my righteousness, it says, my sanctification. And so I boast in him. I fail. I've got ketchup on my shirt. I've got a red shirt by this point. Okay? That's my, that's, that's my background. That's my life. But God has changed me. I guess my shirt is white now because he's cleansed me and he's changed me. And God redeems fools. Listen, if you're in the room and you're suffering today, because of foolishness, you read this chapter, you go, it's something I did. It's something I said. They won't forgive me. It's like that relationship is over because of me. I acted foolishness. It is true that a little folly can undo a lot of wisdom, but it's also true that Jesus is wisdom from God for you, that he is your righteousness, and that you can boast in him. We boast in him because a little folly can undo a lot of wisdom, but his grace covers it all, friends. This is the good news. I'm not taking the edge 
off the warnings of the Scriptures. Oh, I believe the warnings of the Scriptures, but I want to tell us that the Bible doesn't just leave us with this, that the story continues on into the New Testament to the coming of Jesus who brings redemption for fools. And He not only gives us uh, redemption, He gives us second chances. He gives us new mercies every morning. And so if you're a believer here today, we don't flaunt grace. We don't take advantage of grace. We thank God for grace. And yet we realize that you can't say or do anything that puts you beyond the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. There is hope and redemption for foolish people. So God rescues us from our foolishness. And then through his word, he transforms our minds by the Holy Spirit and sometimes it's incrementally slow, very slow, but he, trans, he, 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 he transforms us and changes us into being people that look more and more like him. He is our wisdom, and he's making us to look more and more like him. So though there's propensity to folly, over time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he changes and sanctifies us so that we begin to live wiser. Our speech reflects him more consistently. If you're a leader, your decisions more consistently affect others better because you're making them for their good and not out of self-interest. You know how to wait and you know when to act because God, through his scripture, has transformed your mind. So he not only saves fools, but he makes us increasingly wise people that look more and more like Jesus, who is our wisdom. The wisest person is the one, according to 1 Corinthians 1, who makes his boast in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is our everything that he is our everything, that, 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 that he is the one who protects us from falling. He is the one who enables us to hear the Spirit through the Word, heed the warnings of Scripture in a passage like this. He is, he is the one that, that calls us to come running to him for help. Listen, when we read a passage from the wisdom literature that exposes folly, and calls us to wisdom in our lives, and, and, and tells us that just a little bit of folly can undo a lot of wisdom, we should find ourselves at that point saying, I'm running to Jesus because I, I need grace and I need help to apply this. I need the Holy Spirit to change my heart. This passage leads us to look outside of ourselves. If you read sections of Scripture like this, you just look in and say, how wise am I? No, you, you're looking outside yourself because wisdom is found right here in the Scripture, and wisdom is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The wisest people are the ones who realize they lack wisdom, and they need help, and they run to Jesus and boast in Him. That's wisdom. Folly is not only living as if God doesn't exist, it's living as if Jesus didn't sacrifice himself for us so that we could be new people changed by him. It's, it's, it's blind to the gospel, it's blind to the power of God and alive to self, but wisdom is alive to God and alive to the power of the gospel. This morning we're going to receive communion together to close, and I think one of the most powerful ways that we run to the Lord is to approach the table and receive um, the bread and the cup to commune with him. This is one of the, we do it at the end of the service normally. And one of the reasons is because when the scripture has spoken to us, it so frequently calls us to run to the Lord, run in thanksgiving, 
run in confession, run in acknowledging our help, run in loving praise and adoration. Many different expressions, but run to Jesus is always the answer. That should always be the response when we hear the Word of God, run to Jesus. And so we walk in an orderly fashion. We're not about to run here, but uh, you get in your heart, you could be running to Jesus um, as we come forward to receive. And we're saying today, Lord, forgive me for the foolishness that's shown up in my life, what I've said and done. Please forgive me as I receive the bread and the cup. I freshly receive your forgiveness today. And Lord, give me power to more and more be conformed to the image of you so that I may speak and act in increasingly wise ways to glorify you and to serve others. That's the goal. So we come and take the bread and the cup today with that in mind. Forgive me and empower me and change me to reflect Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 